Hi, Michael. Hi there, Allison. And welcome everyone to Dean's Discuss COVID-19, a weekly podcast where we dive into the research being done at UC Davis, both at the College of Medicine and the College of Veterinary Medicine. And today we're talking about the coming of the second wave of COVID-19, which is on everybody's mind, and uh, asking questions such as, are we prepared? Or is this our new reality? I know it's on everybody's on mind. So let's get started. You know, Michael, I think that we thought that uh, COVID was gonna come, we would batten down the hatches and things would return to normal. But what we're talking about now in our medical center is really the new normal. I, I think we're in uh, this for a little bit longer. Absolutely. I mean, you know, in, in addition to our campus around the world, you know, there are a lot of questions being asked, a lot of um, modeling being done by epidemiologists to try to predict what will be the future for the infection. And certainly that's on a lot of people's minds is, is all of the different factors. You know, I think as we, as we talk, we can bring some of those out. And epidemiology, of course, is that, is that science that both of our campuses are involved in that involve taking the data that's coming out from infection rates, from rates of spread uh, within the community and, and asking questions such as what are the factors? Can we predict what's gonna happen in the future? And epidemiology is really at the heart of that, but that's just one factor is the, the data as it comes in. What are some of the things at the School of Medicine that, that are happening that, that really have affected and maybe projected into the future for you, Allison? Well, some of the things that we're concerned about really is the change in the people who are getting COVID. And so mm -hmm. the people coming in the emergency room now are younger and getting sent home to self-quarantine. And of course, we're seeing lots of concern about college campuses opening. Uh, I know myself as a parent of a college student, you know, that's a big concern. So from an epidemiology perspective, I think everybody thought it's gonna be the people with the chronic illnesses that are gonna get this, this infection. And now we know uh, that um, children can be carriers, that we can have young people um, are not necessarily um, immune. Uh, and there is this issue about how many people does it take to, to spread. Um, we talked in the past about super spreader events from an epidemiology perspective, then you kind of begin to think about, well, what is the impact of this in terms of containing the disease? And I think from a new normal perspective is, how are we as a society, as educators, um, going to figure out how to control this disease um, when, without just battening down the hatches? You know, we can't close society uh, forever, but we're going to have to figure out how to educate. So for example, um, close to home, uh, we are having anatomy class this month with our first year medical students. And we have gone to extraordinary measures with PPE and spacing and the number of people that can be in class um, to continue to do that. It would be very difficult to have a medical school without having anatomy. You know, anatomy is core, as you know, to teaching veterinary medicine, core to teaching medicine. So the new normal um, is going to be this type of hybrid teaching. So I just think it's really going to upend the way we think about everything. Yeah, I know both of our campuses are preparing for the, 
you know, our students. And as you mentioned, we have ongoing uh, clinical and uh, laboratory um, uh, scenarios where we do have to continue to teach in a in-person fashion. And that means in person, but that doesn't mean that we teach it the same way. And, you know, the physical distancing, uh, we are putting up uh, right now as I speak, uh, tents outside in order to really spread out some of our problem-based cases that we have so that we can have that uh, human interaction, but at a safe distance. And as you mentioned, the laboratory. So education will also be affected by technology. I think, you know, we're thrust into using things like virtual reality, uh, which is really can simulate some of the anatomy questions without having an animal involved. And so we're collaborating with other universities on virtual reality and and certainly that's gonna be a big part of our educational delivery over the next year. And maybe some of those things will carry also into the future. You know, another thing that I think we can learn from is um, that we've had pandemics before and uh, we have viral infections that have spread worldwide. And if we look at those examples and think about what can we learn from them, um, in some cases um, we've been able to be successful, but those are really, a very minor number of those smallpox is, and render pest on the veterinary side are the only two that are truly eradicated worldwide. But most of these we live with uh, over time uh, based upon the level of immunity within the population. We call it herd immunity. And that term has been brought out interestingly enough as, as we've learned about the infection in humans. But herd immunity is taught within the um, classes within veterinary school right from the very beginning because we know that if 50 or 70% of the population has some sort of immunity, these uh, epidemics uh, will be less. And as you mentioned, uh, we can't shut down uh, the entire economy of the world um, going forward. So we have to learn to live with this. Yeah, you know, I think um, uh, it's also gonna be the new normal for our patients. So, um, you know, we, we kind of calm down doing, you know, cut back, uh, things for our temporarily we're back now and there's no way patients can put things on hold either just like we can't have students put things on hold so mm -hmm. you know we still need to be doing people's hips and people need their cancer surgery and we never stopped doing those things but I think there were patients who postponed things so the new normal is going to also be um, really bringing in telemedicine as just part of the way you go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, uh, that's going to be new as well. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's, this is going to change the way we think about everything, I think, um, from education to research to, to clinical care. Yeah. And one of the things I know that uh, you're dealing with also is the spectrum of clinical uh, outcomes that you're seeing. Uh, you had mentioned a very important factor, which is the, um, the, the demographics of the population of the age factors. And certainly that's uh, one factor and also the different types of diseases. Uh, one of the things that I know that uh, as we learn more about them, there are individuals that are called long haulers, which sounds like a trucking term, but in reality, it's a, it's a common term that's now being applied to those that have COVID-19 infections, but the symptoms even after they become um, less shedding of the virus, persist, and they persist in a variety of ways. Have you noticed that, or have your physicians seen a lot of individuals that may 
in fact have longer term effects from COVID? Well, I think we may be seeing people who have a longer time to recovery. And mm -hmm. so that's actually one of the issues and why we really need to expedite some of these research trials. So we know now that if you use certain drugs like remdesivir, you may be on the ventilator for a shorter time or um, dexamethasone, but you know, we really need to understand the recovery of patients. I think the other thing I want to say is that the, um, the paradigm for testing has changed markedly over the last couple of weeks. So Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, led a really um, remarkable town hall with the American Association of Medical Colleges about 10 days ago. And our own UC Health, Carrie Bynington, who is herself an infectious disease doctor, uh, was one of the panelists. And what came out of that discussion was this no, no need for second testing if you're positive you don't need a negative test. And so heretofore people were doing, you know, two negative tests before you had to come out or had to have a negative test. And, you know, with the constraints that we have on um, reagents or the resources, the, the liquid that you need to add to make the, the, the cocktail work to do one of these PCR tests, um, you know, there's no longer a recommendation for a second, um, a second test. Uh, you're positive, you quarantine, um, you then are become symptom-free, and you don't need to have a negative test to, uh, to, to return to work. This whole idea about screening asymptomatic people is, is really problematic if it takes, in some of the commercial labs, you know, a long time, a week or more to get the test back. That's a real challenge as well. And so we're all going to need to begin to think about um, uh, this as a public health, long-term public health uh, uh, crisis that we're going to have to manage on a day-to-day -day basis. And so the fluidity, fluidity of the information out there and what we're doing really um, it is really challenging to get that out to everyone uh, in an institution and let alone the country. Absolutely. I think at a campus level and then our government policy as we as we think about uh, the testing is, is, is critical. As you mentioned, the, the resource limitations of having enough of the right um, reagents and, and things that we need to, to test are really critical. One of the, the ways, and I was on that, that teleconference with Francis Collins and, and you and I were both listening as we talked about pool testing. And, yeah. and people um, you know, maybe don't really understand that concept, but that's actually a term that's used uh, frequently in veterinary medicine, when we have very large numbers of animals, in our case, in a population with a disease, and instead of having to sample each individual animal, in our case, and in, in the case of humans, each individual person, uh, pools are taking within a population. And in the case of our phone call the other day, we were talking about five to 10 people in a pool. And I know different universities and different uh, groups are looking at pool testing. The other thing that's expanding is looking at our capacity for resources. And there are, and you can explain this better than I can, but laboratories that are specifically designed for diagnostic testing called CLIA laboratories. And there are other laboratories that are capable of testing, but they're not certified that way. And some of these laboratories may be brought in for the pool testing, not to diagnose an individual, but to really look at what is called the prevalence of the disease. So how many people are infected within a population? And those are the kind of expansions of testing that are 
being explored across the country and I know on our campus as well. What is a CLIA laboratory? Um, so this is really important and as myself as a researcher, a CLIA laboratory is certified for giving clinical test results. So for example, in any research, if you find that someone has an antibody or a gene and it's done in a research paradigm, you are not supposed to give those results because those results have not gone through the clinical uh, rigor uh, of a laboratory. Whereas if you get a test, say a blood count from a CLIA lab, they have quality outcomes and really um, inspection processes and um, they have really ways to assure that everything is done in a consistent manner, both in that lab across the country. So it is highly regulated. What is being suggested, and I think this is very novel and really is an important point because it speaks to what I call the value proposition, you know, really the strength of coming out of COVID is going to come out of our academic health systems. And the reason is one that you uh, talked about is the ability of the academic systems, in other words, the research labs to stand up things to look at large populations. So for example, if you take a couple thousand people and you do pooling, you would then um, use reagents for five people and get a signal out of that, that group or that population and then go back and test if something's positive. And this is really important if you expect the positivity rate to be relatively low, like we, we do in, a, in an asymptomatic population. This is very clever because then it allows us to save the diagnostic tests for people who have symptoms that we need to get into clinical trials. It saves reagents and it allows us to learn a lot more about the overall prevalence of the disease. And so, um, you know, Carrie, uh, Dr. Byington um, from UC Health was on that panel and they had Duke and Penn and UC San Diego were all speaking about the importance of these type of things for monitoring. You know, um, it, it is really bringing to light the value that research labs. So I think a lot of us, um, a lot of people think, not myself, but a lot of people think research labs are off, you know, doing things that aren't going to be relevant for years and years, but these are going to be relevant immediately in terms so of true. being able to, to get a handle. Yeah. And one of the things that's happening, and this goes back into our basic research laboratories is, is trying to understand, okay, if we, if we can't sample by the traditional methods or through qualified labs, as you mentioned, what are their alternatives? And one of the ways to, to do that is to use other technologies, sort of what are called high throughput. Uh, and these yes. are, are, are being done in other um, avenues, such as in genomics and genomic testing. You know, we used to uh, spend months to years, and we mentioned Francis Collins, when the human genome was sequenced, it took many, many years to sequence the very first human genome. Well, now we can do that very frequently. In fact, in the case of COVID, there are over 50,000, and there are probably more now, uh, whole genome sequences. So the entire strain of the virus, the entire code has been sequenced that are in the database now. And that shows you the, how rapid the technology has changed. And that can be applied to diagnostic testing as well. And, and our researchers in our laboratories here at, at Davis and across the nation are looking at high throughput testing. The other 
interesting thing, as you pointed out, is you know, when we started testing for the virus, we used those longer swabs and material that had to get all the way back into the nasal pharyngeal area, all the way back at the back of the, the nasal cavity, because that was where the virus was certainly being shed. But as technology and as we have more information, they're looking at other sampling methods and where the virus may be detected as well, including saliva. And as that gets um, perfected and with pooling, there may be an opportunity to save reagents, um, be able to sample populations more. And so I think one of our new realities is uh, prevalence testing in the future using these new technologies for sure. Yes, and even some um, places are talking about uh, testing the water, um, the, the sewage to look at mm -hmm. that. Um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's just, um, I am so impressed with the rapid speed so the rapid speed of things that are going on right now, the rapid approval of trials, the rapid um, information dissemination. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's interesting because I think in some ways our Zoom world is contributing to that because now we, you know, there were 500 people on that call disseminating that information in real time, listening to Francis Collins and the other speakers. Um, heretofore, you would probably have had a hundred people. You certainly would not have had a 500 people flying across mm -hmm. the country. So there is some um, just rapid dissemination of knowledge and then getting that out. Um, the vaccine information is just astounding. The fact that, you know, there's vaccine uh, trials being stood up uh, here at UC Davis. We're um, very close to hopefully being um, uh, participating in at least one of those trials. Um, you know, those things are going to be also rapid uh, dissemination of information and then getting patients in the community to participate, which will be so, so critical um, because for a vaccine, as you know more than I, Michael, with your background is, you know, we need to test the vaccine in patients who come from all parts of our society and our culture and understand, um, uh, you know, what, 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 who might be more um, immune or less immune. And, and we've begun to see just a, um, a terrible, uh, terrible impact in some areas of our society on COVID. And, and, and so this is also going to be really important that we, we just get a whole community out there to participate in these type of, these type of trials, particularly these vaccine trials. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, in addition to just our own personal behavior of, of uh, washing our hands and, and, and face masks, that's clearly a, a frontline, very inexpensive measure that we all need to do. You know, I think the other thing that's really interesting uh, and that is coming out rapidly is the the amount of uh, laboratory data, uh, research studies that are looking closely at what is, um, constitutes a immunity against the virus and how long does it last? Those are key questions. So in the natural infection, we all develop an immune response unless you're immune compromised, uh, you know, and that could happen as well. But in a normal situation, we all developed antibodies and everybody's familiar with that concept of of antibodies forming from a natural infection or a vaccine. One of the questions is how long do they last? And that really influences on a population basis, the kind of curves we see or the kind of resurgence that we're gonna see. So if the uh, virus infection results in immunity that is only 40 weeks or less, and it doesn't um, uh, sustain after that, 
we may see second surges uh, of the virus and we have to recognize that. And that's true with other infections. Um, influenza is a, is a different virus. It reassorts, it, it changes its genome. So we have to actually prepare each and every year for a new strain of the virus. In coronaviruses, they'll mutate and they'll evolve over time. We don't know whether they're gonna get less virulent or more virulent, meaning that cause more disease. And interesting, the first SARS outbreak, so this would be the first uh, SARS that was in 2002, late emerging, you know, that happened and, in, and involved about 8,000 people, but there was very quick testing for the virus in isolation. But in addition, the virus was different. It didn't spread as easily. And it also didn't shed from asymptomatic individuals like SARS-2, COV-2. And, and that's a difference in just the virus and the etiology of how it you know, influences the course of the epidemiology. So we're still studying that and there's a lot of rapid information coming out from different population studies around the world of how long does natural immunity occur does it involve also cells, uh, so B and T cells, which are longer lasting or cell-metered immunity? Those are very important questions as well. And then of course, as you mentioned, vaccine development. And vaccines are clearly part of that answer. And the amount of massive effort um, that is being done around the world and here in Davis around the vaccine and whether we can use that as well, even if that is partially protective, and if we can get enough people with a, the vaccine, it can be delivered safely. That will be a key determinant of dampening down the uh, future uh, surges in the rate of infection. So I'm really hoping that this changes kind of societal's mindset about vaccines, that we really begin a national discussion about the importance of medical research. Um, you know, the fact that Tony Fauci is one of the most beloved individuals in the country uh, by far and away most people, I think is just a testament to how, um, you know, clinical research and the importance of clinical research has just hit the mainstream. And, you know, the fact that the, 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 the man on the street, for example, is asking, when do you think we'll have a vaccine? I mean, that's a fascinating thing. I never thought as a dean of a school of medicine that people would be asking me that. So mm -hmm. it, is, it is one of the things that has really come to the forefront is the importance of research. For example, generally to get remdesivir, um, you have to participate in a research trial because there's mm -hmm. a national shortage of remdesivir, which is the only drug that's really been shown to shorten the course when you're put on a ventilator. Um, I think most people in the country would not realize that. They would have thought, well, it's approved, it's out there, we can get it. Um, so there's not only shortages of drugs, there's shortages of the reagents as we've discussed. So, you know, I think, um, I think again, it goes back to the new normal. Um, the new normal is gonna be both how we conduct ourselves personally with masks and hand washing for a long, long time. Uh, there's gonna be a lot less travel, a lot more Zoom. It's going to be a new normal for education and as educators we're all going to be pushed to do more than just give a talk online on zoom and really be interactive as you said and then figure out how to do those critical courses you know we have uh, medical students in our hospital now who are taking care of patients um, and um, they're not taking care of patients with covid known covid uh, but they are taking care of patients. So we've got them back in because, you know, we need to train doctors when uh, now more than ever, we need doctors. So 
it's just, um, it is an unprecedented time. And I've used that word more than I care to admit, mm -hmm. but it is truly an unprecedented time. And UC Davis is uniquely positioned to really respond to that with uh, the vet med school, engineering, nursing, medicine, and you know, it's really positioned us very well to be nimble and to be responsive. And it's my hope that we can bring some of these new technologies on board uh, sooner than later. Definitely. Well, this has been really a great discussion, Michael. Um, I hope that you'll join us next when we talk more about vaccines and national clinical trials. And I'm Allison Brashear, the Dean of UC Davis School of Medicine. Yeah, I think there's a lot of topics that we can get into and, and we have more to, to delve into on our next uh, podcast. So please uh, come back and, and listen. I'm Michael Larimore, Dean of the School uh, of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis. And you've been listening to the Deans Discuss COVID-19 podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you see our next episode, which we're gonna go into more of these uh, very interesting topics, more in depth uh, as we look at our new reality. And we welcome your questions and ideas on topics for the future episodes. You can email us at deansdiscuss at ucdavis.edu. And in the meantime, you can visit ucdavis.edu backslash COVID-19 for the latest coronavirus research and news from UC Davis. <laughs>